On a cold January day, a 43-year-old man was sworn in as the chief executive of his country. And by his side stood his predecessor, a famous general who 15 years earlier had commanded his nation's armed forces in a war that resulted in the defeat of Germany. This young leader was raised Roman Catholic. And then he spent the next five hours watching parades in his honor and stayed up celebrating until three o'clock in the morning. Do you know who I just described? Who is it? Most people assume it's JFK. Until I give you one piece of missing data that I purposefully left out. It's not January 20th, 1961. It's actually January 30th, 1933. This paragraph from Simon Sinek is actually describing Adolf Hitler at his inauguration and his rise to power. See, these are two vastly different leaders who led their countries down two completely different paths. Both, in their own right, were visionary leaders. Both could command a room. Both could deliver a speech that changed how you feel and, more importantly, changed how you act. One fought for peace and equality, and the other one fought for inequality and escalated war. One inspired millions to reach for the heavens, and another inspired millions to reach for the depths of hell. John Maxwell, who's a prolific American writer on the topic of leadership, says this, leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. See, leaders have the power to lead people to great heights or to lead people to great depths. And we know this to be true. Without a leader, people lack vision and they lack organization. They lack direction. In fact, in the absence or vacuum of a leader, inevitably someone always rises up to take the lead. We just do not like leaderless groups and organizations. That's why leaders throughout the ages has said, with great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben. He actually stole that from, from some philosophers, but we'll give him credit. It's no different in the church. See, God in his grace has given leaders to lead his church. And the Bible has much to say about the why of leadership, the who of leadership, and the how of leadership. And we've been in this series, Membership Matters, and in our first message, we looked at how the church is called together. How is it that God brings together the people of God? In our second message, we looked at how we were called to belong to one another, right? That he doesn't just bring us, to better, uh, bring us together so we can cohabitate in some kind of friendly relationship, but we're actually called to belong together, that we're joined together, that we need each other. And today we're going to look at how the church is called to follow, that there's actually a leadership structure that God has placed so that we can follow him, so we can um, be the people of God. So today we're going to look at the principles of God's leadership. We're also going to look at the people of God's leadership. And finally, we'll close with a picture of God's leadership. So first, let's start with the principles of leadership. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's the passage that we just read. We'll also have the words on the screen as well. Now, as you're opening up to 1 Peter or maybe flipping there in your app, you'll notice that 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. That's why it has his name on the book. Now, if you remember Peter, especially from our uh, 
uh, sermon series through the gospel of Mark, you'll remember that at the end, he denied Christ three times. Remember that? Even though he had a heads up, Jesus told them, hey, when the pressure comes up, you're going to deny me three times. Even though he had a heads up, he denied Christ during his trials. And after the resurrection, Jesus pulled Peter aside, not only to forgive him, but to restore him to a place of leadership. And he gave him this unbelievable responsibility to love the flock of God, to feed them, to ensure that in his absence, the church would get started and thrive. Peter wrote this letter to encourage Christians to remain faithful to the end, even though they were starting to experience a lot of suffering and trial. At the end of his letter, he concludes with a charge on leadership in the church. So here are these words of scripture again. So I exhort the elders among you as as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when, verse four, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now in the Bible, the word elders is used interchangeably with words like pastors, shepherds, and overseers. They're all, they're they're four different words to describe the same singular office of leadership, the highest level of leadership in the local church. So here at Seven Mile Road, you'll hear us use those, the the words elder and pastor um, interchangeably to refer to this level of leadership that God has given to be the the kind of the, the senior level of leadership in the church. Now notice that Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. It's not elders anywhere. It's the ones that are among you. You see, God gives to specific churches, specific men to lead that church. In specific locations, there's a specific group of people that God has infused and given um, ministry to give oversight and direction to the church. You'll also notice that the word elders is plural. It's not one singular person either. When you see the elders spoken of in the Bible, it's always in the plural. Because see, a plurality of elders can share the load together. There's a weight and a responsibility that comes with it. They can hold each other accountable. They can encourage each other. They can provide the wisdom that comes through a multiplicity of voices and backgrounds and talents and gifts. There's safety in that plurality. Then he tells the elders, that's who we're talking about, to shepherd the flock of God among them. Now, this isn't a suggestion. It's not, hey, if you get around to it, it'd be really great if you could shepherd these people. Grammatically, nerd glasses, it's a command. It's an imperative. He's saying, do this. Shepherd them. This is your job. And I find it amazing that God chose to use this, uh, built into this call of an elder, this inherent metaphor of a shepherd. Now, our culture and society is vastly removed from shepherding. I mean, how many of you grew up as shepherds out in the fields with a a flock of animals? Maybe our Texan friends, some of them did. (laughs) See, shepherds aren't glamorous people. They lived in relative obscurity and they spent their time with sheep, can you imagine that? Out there in the pastures, the only people you got, only people you got to talk to are the sheep, you know? 
Everything you say, they always just say, bah. <laughs> Shepherds don't get rich either. Their job was to lead the sheep to green pastures to find good food and to quiet still water so they could drink in safety. The job of the shepherd is to gather scattered sheep to protect them from wolves by standing between them. They put themselves in the face of danger. They knew their sheep, not generally, but specifically. And the sheep knew their shepherd's voice. If you were to read books about ancient um, uh, Palestinian shepherding, you would know that the sheep can actually distinguish their shepherd's voice from among other shepherds. If there are two uh, flocks moving past one another, there's no panic. Their shepherd only has to call and their, their sheep know their voice. It's amazing. The shepherd smelled like his sheep. That's the picture of the pastor that we're given in scripture And in this chapter, Peter gives five principles of leadership for elders that I want to quickly walk through. First, he says elders are to give careful direction. If you're taking notes, elders give careful direction. Peter reminds them, it's not your flock. It's ultimately God's flock. He said, shepherd the flock of God. He's given them oversight for a season under the headship and leadership and lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the great shepherd. They are under shepherds accountable to Jesus. And their love for the Lord will teach them to love the flock, to lead the flock in a way that resembles the way that Jesus loves and leads his church as well. And how did he love his church? Well, he gave his life up for her. See, this is not domineering leadership. This is servant leadership that's willing to lay down your life for the sheep. Peter goes on to say, exercise your God-given oversight. What this means is that they're to give clear and careful direction. Pastors are supposed to provide solid teaching and preaching to remind us of our identity in Christ and to also point us to our inheritance that is to come. Pastors will equip the saints for the work of ministry so that everyone is built up in the church. Elders are supposed to lead the church to know, love, and follow Jesus with a vision for how to live out their faith in whatever context they're in. Also, as they're giving careful direction, elders are supposed to guard the doctrine of the church from false teachers who could rise from within and also false teachers who might want to come in from the outside. No matter where it comes from, pastors must be quick to refute any false teaching that contradicts scripture. Why? Because ideas have consequences and false ideas breed false consequences. If we let false truth into the church, it can have devastating effects. Pastors are also there to set up organization and government. Not too much government and structure so that's overbearing, but not too little structure so that it's chaotic. Because we know that the body of Christ thrives when the right balance of order and flexibility, system and spontaneity are there. Elders have the God-given authority to serve and care for the flock. I love the way that Pastor Tabidi Anwabile says it. He says, Christians are messy people. If that's you today, you are in good company Our lives are filled with brokenness, waste and trouble and sticky situations. And sometimes we even wander. This is why we need shepherds, men who know what to do with sheep, how to care for us, lead us and navigate our mess. 
Pastors are supposed to smell like their sheep. They're supposed to be accessible and involved in the life of their people. Another way to think of it is this. Pastors are first responders to your life. When tragedy hits, when suffering hits, they're there to help you walk through the trials of life. So that they give careful direction. Secondly, they're also supposed to do so with a willing desire. Number two is willing desire. Elders are to lead out of willing desire, not out of compulsion or guilt. They shouldn't lead merely because they feel some kind of sense of duty, but they should be driven by a desire and delight. They should want to do it. See, there's a genuine weight and responsibility that comes with leading God's church. And an elder should be able to discern that genuine sense of calling, and they should want to accept the weight and responsibility. Number three, elders are to have a pure motivation. Did you hear what Peter said? Elders are to lead with eagerness, not for shameful game. See, they're given this place of authority to lead for the good of those that they're leading. Too many have been given this level of leadership and have given the church a bad reputation by using the church as a means for personal wealth. You may have seen some of these clowns on television. They treat the church like a multi-level marketing scheme or some kind of get-rich-quick scam, and they abuse easily manipulated people into giving them their money. That's awful. It's tragic. The enthusiasm to lead should come from a joy of knowing the grace of God and a fervent desire to want to lead other people to taste that. We want them to taste the riches of Christ. Money is a cheap motivation. And those who use the church for selfish gain will not receive the honor that comes from leading, but they will, friends, receive the shame of judgment. Because God does not take lightly those who lead, the, who take the temple of God's spirit, the church, and turn it into a place of greed. Number four, elders that a lead from a humble posture. They're not to domineer. Maybe you've felt the, the weight of an overbearing or dominating leader, and that's not what he's calling elders to do. See, elders do have a real God-given authority to lead, but it must never be dictatorial. Too many churches are led by power-hungry, self-interested people who turn church government into spiritual tyranny and abuse. That's not what we're talking about here. If you've ever suffered under that, let me be one to say, I'm so sorry. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're talking about an authority that is received from God, and that in and of itself should produce sobriety and humility. The authority to lead a church to serve the people of God is to see them thrive and flourish at the cost, at cost to themselves. See, this is how Jesus led, and elders are supposed to lead in the same way that Jesus did. Number five, Peter tells us that elders are to live a godly example. See, elders are called to live as an example for the flock. Now, do not put us up on pedestals. We are ordinary, sinful men. But we are called to live exemplary lives, not perfect lives. Lives that say, follow me as I follow Christ. A pastor should never ask a member of the church to do something that he is not willing to do himself. Another way to think about it is like elders are pace setters in the spiritual uh, race of life. They're the ones setting the pace to show what it looks like to live a life well lived, pursuing Christ 
and then also getting on their knees and asking for forgiveness when we fail. Now, before moving on to the next passage, Peter finishes in verse five with a section on what it means to follow godly leadership. So if we assume there's godly leadership in place, what does it look like for us to follow it? Look at verse five with me. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you see this word younger here, that's not talking about younger in age. It's actually talking about younger in spiritual maturity. In fact, this was a word that was used to describe new wine. It was, it was ready to go, but it had to be fermented, right? It, had, it, was, it, it, it needed to sit for a season so that it could ferment and age before it was ready for consumption. It needed to mature. What's happening here is this, the, the younger are being compared to the office of elders in the church. Now, this isn't meant to create some kind of caste system in the church, It's merely saying anyone who's not currently holding that office should joyfully follow the elders of God that God has placed in the church. So it begs the question, how do we do that? Peter says, in order to follow, we have to clothe ourselves with humility. In our own flesh, if we're willing to be honest when we look in the mirror, we are self-interested, distrusting, and anti-authoritarian, aren't we? Or am I the only one? Now, if you're quick to disagree, if you're going, no, not true at all, don't you know you're kind of proving my point right now, right? True humility is not moping about spewing self-deprecating monologues like Eeyore. That's not what humility means. Humility means thinking of yourself less, less often and having a genuine concern and desire for other people. Listen how the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 13, verse 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. Let them do this with joy. Let me say that again. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, when we put on humility, it, re- it means we realize that God has placed people in uh, leadership over us as they're leading us heavenward. Ed Clowney, in his book on the church, says it well. He says, Christian submission to authority, however, is never servile. Christian exercise of authority is never authoritarian. And those are the two barometers to help us. So, so submitting to leaders doesn't mean you grovel in their presence, they're not some, some elite class of people. And at the same time, leaders are never supposed to lead with an authoritarian, dictatorial kind of leadership. But we have to realize that in our flesh, there's this, 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 in, this inner uh, anti-authoritarian drive in us. We don't even like the word authority, right? This is where we have to let scripture change our minds and shape our hearts, Because authority is not inherently evil. Corrupt authority is toxic, right? That's what's evil. But good authority actually leads to thriving and flourishing. Godly leaders recognize what Coos and Posner write in their book, The Truth About Leadership. I'm going to read this paragraph. And this this is what we're going for here as a church when it talks about leadership. He says this, leadership is shared responsibility. You need others and they need you. You're all in this together. To build and sustain 
that sense of oneness, exemplary leaders are sensitive to the needs of others. They ask questions, they listen, they provide support, they develop skills, they ask for help, they align people in a common cause. They make people feel like anything is possible. They connect people to their need to be in charge of their own lives, and they enable others to be even better than they already are. That's what we're going for here. Servant leadership where we see people thrive together. When there's this kind of leadership, people leading with humility and people following with humility, it lets us be the people of God filled with the presence of God in order to fulfill the purposes of God in the world. Godly leadership is meant for us to thrive. So that's the principles of leadership. Now let's look at the people of leadership. Um, If you're looking in your Bible, flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in this passage, Paul lists the qualifications of the two officers who are to provide leadership in the church. He mentions two of them. The first is elders and the second is deacons. And so we'll start with the first qualifications with elders. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he, deny, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an, officer, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded and self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own house, how can he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, if you were counting there, Paul lists out 16 different qualifications that elders must have. I've kind of categorized them into five buckets to help us understand them. The first qualification of an elder is that they have godly ambition. This is not lust for power, nor is it prideful. We have to bridge the gap between those two things. See, to want to meet the qualifications of an elder and to serve in that role, Paul says it's a noble and commendable thing. Tabidi, a pastor I just referenced earlier, offers a challenging comment in his book on eldership. He says the problem in many churches is actually not that people are trying to become, uh, are trying to assume that power uh, and that responsibility. He says the problem in many churches falls on the other end of the spectrum. Most men aspire for little more than comfort and an enemy, ease, and just about anything except leadership responsibility. Now that is a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. There is an absence of Godward, godly ambition in the church today from the men. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're not an elder that you're lazy. That's not what it means. But it does mean that this list that Paul gives us is a picture of what maturity looks like. And the people in the church should strive towards that. It's actually not even just a maturity of, of, of manhood. It's maturity for anyone who is in Christ. What an amazing list of qualifications and character that he lists out there. So not only should an elder have godly ambition, secondly, an elder should have godly character. Again, like I said earlier, no one is perfect. An elder is to be exemplary, not perfect. 
Striving for holiness is a focused goal for this person. An elder must be above reproach, which means that character is a prerequisite. If you notice, most of those categories that Paul was talking about have to do with personal integrity. See, the inner life and the outer life need to line up. They need to exude Christ-likeness. People need to, be, uh, need to trust him and respect him. So that when you say their name, this is an elder in my church, you're not like, oh, him, right? It should be, oh, he's a great guy. He's a godly leader. He's, he's someone I could entrust my soul to. Paul says that he also must be the husband of one wife. This is where churches get the notion that elders are to be men in the life of the church. Now, this doesn't mean that women aren't gifted leaders or that we don't need women in leadership. Some of the best leaders and teachers I know are women. And the church most certainly needs women in leadership. But what it is saying is that the office of elder is reserved for men. Now, the elders must create channels and pathways for women to lead and to serve in the church, and they also must create avenues to be able to hear from the women. The, women's, the voice of a woman into the life of the church is extremely valuable, and it's something that a lot of churches have neglected. And again, if you have been in a church where that's happened, I'm so sorry. It should not have been like that. Women need to have a place where they have a voice and influence at the table of leadership. But again, that doesn't mean that we gloss over what the scriptures are saying, that the office of elder is reserved for certain qualified men. The way this phrase reads in the Greek is a one woman man. So what this means is if they're married, they're not to be polygamous and they're also to be sexually pure. See, in a culture like ours that tolerates rampant sexual sin, serial divorce, Pornography is almost a given these days. This is meant to say those who lead in Jesus' church. Hold on, lost my place. Those who lead in Jesus' church will not be given to sexual immorality. It's saying if he's single, he will be chaste. And if he's married, he'll be faithful to his wife. In addition, an elder is to be self-controlled, not a drunkard, and they're to be respectable. What this means is elders are called to live a disciplined life. They cannot be controlled by the passions of the flesh or given to escaping responsibility through drunkenness. What this means is elders must know how to fight sin in their lives and how to cultivate holiness and godly living. Third, elders must have a godly presence. They're to be gentle. They're to be peacemakers hospitable, respected by outsiders. See, when you think about elders in the church, there should be an approachability about them. You should be able to walk up to them, talk with them, interacting with them, not fearing that you're gonna be hurt or demeaned. They should know how to both speak with authority and firmness without making someone feel belittled. Elders are to be peacemakers. See, elders should know when to take a stand and when to let something go. You know why? Because not everything is a hill worth dying on. They should be bridge builders, people who know how to disarm conflict, not to arm conflict and ramp it up. They're also to be hospitable. 
They should welcome others as Jesus has welcomed us with relational generosity. As they have people in their home, people should feel welcome with a presence that makes you feel at ease. See, being hospitable is not that you know how to decorate well. Being hospitable means that when someone comes in, they feel at home and you share your family, your table, your time with them. You share your very lives. Elders are to be respected by outsiders in the community, which means that they have learned how to be a light in a dark world. They've learned what it means to be distinct yet respected. They also know how to disagree agreeably because there's gonna be things we disagree on, but they know how to disagree well. They know how to relate to people with different backgrounds and, uh, and belief systems, and they know how to navigate difficult conversations. Fourth, elders must be godly teachers. Of all the qualifications that I just read, the only one that deals with a skill set is this one. Why? So much of the elder's job revolves around teaching and preaching and defending the congregation from doctrinal error. So an elder must be able to rightly handle God's word and to communicate these truths in a clear and compelling kind of way. Teaching can range from counseling to one-to-one discipleship to teaching classes or even preaching. And an elder doesn't have to be able to do them all, but the text tells us that he has to be able to teach in some form. And fifth, elders must be godly leaders. Paul says they must be sober-minded, not a lover of money, a leader in their home, mature and humble. Sober-mindedness means that they have a level-headedness about them. There's wisdom. They're discerning. They can tell right from wrong, truth from fiction. They can see a pathway forward. They're not corrupted by money because greed corrupts leadership. It always has and always will. They cannot be given to the love of money. In fact, they also have to be able to lead in their home. Again, not perfectly, but as you observe their family life, there should be an order there. See, they're setting the tone for the Godward direction of their family. And an elder's first ministry is to his home. For how can, Paul says, they lead the larger family of God if they can't even lead their own particular family? Paul says he can't be a recent convert either. They need to walk in spiritual maturity first. They need to be tested and true. And finally, like we've been saying over and over, godly leaders must be humble. Because when you realize that everything you have, church, is by God's grace, it'll free you from arrogance and pride. And elders need to drink that truth deeply. Every elder must be humble and consider that everything they have, including the office of leadership, is given to them as a grace from God. Again, everything that Paul describes here is talking about character, not skill or ability. See, if we're going to entrust that kind of responsibility and authority to certain men in the church, God has made it such that their character is a prerequisite. God, when he's looking for leaders, is looking at the heart, not ability, when deciding who is going to lead his church. And if we put people in leadership that have that kind of character, then we can trust them. Now, with that kind of character um, established for elders, next, Paul looks at deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. We'll have the words on the screen. So he says, deacons likewise must be dignified, 
not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. They have to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Look at verse 11. Women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. And for those who serve as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the first thing that you'll notice is how similar the qualifications are for elders and deacons. Again, that's because character and leadership matters. And so it says deacons need to be dignified and they need to be truthful. Again, not addicted to drunkenness or greed. They should be steadfast in their faith, having their priorities rightly aligned. Paul says they need to have a proven track record. See, often we put people in places of leadership before they've even been tested, right? Which isn't wise. They need to be reliable people that you can count on. See, where elders have the authority to lead the, and, and the responsibility to lead the church in doctrine and organization, deacons are there to help carry out the vision by serving where needed. In fact, the very word deacon comes from the Greek word that means servant. So the heart of a deacon says, where is their need and how can I help? That's what a deacon is looking to do, saying, how can we fulfill the mission that God has given us? The second thing to notice in this passage is that the office of deacons can be held by both men and women. This passage specifically lists the qualifications for women as deacons, which again, stretches, uh, stresses character and um, faithfulness. Now, I don't have time today to go into, because this is like a big, hot topic in the, in the church, and I don't have time today to go into both cases for the arguments. I'm just trying to give us a picture of God's leadership today. So it's a, it's a place where there's a disagreement on this. So you might be in some churches that say women can't be deacons, and you might be, uh, have other churches where they say um, they can. And I'd love, if you want to talk more about the biblical arguments for both, I'd be happy to uh, send you some good resources, and we can, um, we can have that conversation. But suffice to say for now, this church believes that Jesus' church needs both men and women leading in the church, and that one of those places that women can lead are as deacons to serve the church, to fulfill her mission so that we can not only be built up as the body of Christ, but also be a blessing to Waltham and beyond. I wanna close today with a picture of what this leadership looks like. We're gonna give a picture of leadership out of Acts chapter 20. These, uh, these other passages laid the theological groundwork for the qualifications of elders. This last passage is going to paint a picture. I know the, the last uh, section of scripture has been um, very teaching heavy, but it's important that we understand the framework of God's leadership in the church. Now I wanna paint the picture of what it looks like. To set the stage for this passage, Paul is on his way to Rome and he knew that he wouldn't make it back. And what follows are his final words to some of his very best friends who he lived and, minist- and did ministry with. Look at verse 18. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink from you to declare to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, 
Don't you sense the intimacy of relationship that Paul had? He lived among these people. He knows them and they know him. And he said that he served in humility. And you know how we know that's true? If Paul had lived as a jerk among them, if he had been a dominating leader among them, do you think anybody would have shown up when he called for them? No, but he was a dear, beloved and trusted friend. And so when Paul comes to the end of his life and says, I'd love it if you'd meet me out here, everyone shows up. Paul was the kind of leader that considered the needs of others before his own. He was marked by gentleness and grace. His whole life was about pointing people to Christ and not himself. So he tells us that they cried together and struggled through trials together. They were like a band of brothers. The work of ministry made them like family. Paul says that he was bold and he didn't shrink back from saying the hard things and he did so with just the right posture and presence. So from time to time, he would teach in large groups and other times he would go from house to house, which again is a picture of the pastorate. Paul devoted his life to helping, see pe- helping people see that repenting from sin and turning to Jesus Christ, it frees us from self-destruction and meaninglessness. Now look with me at verse 22. He goes on, he says, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit has testified to me that in every city, imprisonment and affliction await me. But I don't count my life as of any value, nor as precious to myself, but only I want to finish the course in ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the gospel, none of you will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which God, the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, there will come men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. What a powerful picture of what it looked like to serve there. He lived in as an, as an example There was a determination, a a resolution in his heart to finish the course and stay true to the end. He He led them in such a way that he could look in the mirror and say, I did my very best. He said, I'm innocent of the blood among you. I've done everything I know to do to point you to Christ. See, Paul didn't just preach popular and convenient truths. He taught the whole counsel of God, even if it was unpopular and inconvenient. He reminds the elders, don't forget to do your job. Pay careful attention to the flock. Because like, like we saw earlier, the shepherd must know his sheep and he must be hyper vigilant to ensure that wolves do not rise up and uh, twist uh, the truth with subtle lies. Because ultimately every elder is an under shepherd to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus said, the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is the shepherd that goes after lost sheep. He's the shepherd that faces the wolves, even laying down his life to save them. See, 
The church is a blood-bought people. Even in the face of unjust persecution, Paul was anchored by the reality that it was Jesus who made his life valuable above all else. Paul was rooted in the fact that nothing else can give your life value and meaning, and no kind of persecution can take that away. See, that's when you know you understand the gospel. Paul can't help but speak the gospel to them in these final words. When you realize that the church is a blood-bought people, you finally begin to realize that you, you in this room, have value. See, each one of us is hardwired to find our value in someone or something. It's what drives our dreams, and it's the fear behind every single nightmare that we have. What Paul is saying is that you are valuable to God, and he was willing to give up the precious blood of Christ to purchase you back. Sin owned you. Death gripped you. You were in slavery to the devil himself. But God, being rich in mercy and love, he gave up his son in order to purchase our redemption. We couldn't pay that debt on our own, and so Jesus paid for it uh, for us. That's why Paul says, I don't count my life as valuable on its own. It's only valuable because I have Christ. And when someone has Christ, their life is infinitely valuable. We matter simply because we matter to God. When you believe that, and I mean truly believe that in the depth of your soul, it reorders your priorities. See, when you hear Paul talk like that, it makes perfect sense if you understand the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, hearing Paul talk like that makes him sound like a crazy man, doesn't it? But for the blood-bought people of God, we hear Paul and we shake our heads and say, yes, he's fully alive and fully in tune with Christ. And that's a good barometer for us this morning. When you hear Paul giving his final words to the men at Ephesus, do his words sound crazy and radical? Or when you hear them, do you say, I want to love and trust Jesus like that. Where are you this morning? Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold. You yourselves know these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we have to help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed. And there was much weeping on the part of all as they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because they knew that they would not see his face again. See, for Paul, ministry did not have a set time. Day or night, he was there. He was available and accessible. And he closes by commending them to God, saying, elders, give oversight to the flock of God. Don't ever forget that those sheep are the Lord's. And in his final words, he points them and commends them to the grace of God who is able to build them up. He reminds them to look out for the weak and remember the words of Jesus that it's better to give than receive. He held up his hands at the end and said, you know these hands, you know them. He said, you've seen them up close. They wiped tears from your faces. I co-labored with you together in ministry. He's saying there's an intimacy there. And that's the picture that we're trying to paint here for leadership in Jesus's church. This is a picture of the kind of leadership we want to have here at Seven Mile Road. 
So God in his grace has given leaders to the church to provide direction and care. We are called as the body to follow them as they point us to Jesus. And with an emphasis on character, it means that we can be diligent to install leaders who meet those qualifications. And when they do, we can actually trust them. So let's be a people of God who trust the leaders that he provides for us. And for those who sense a calling to lead, strive towards holiness. And let's have that conversation because God, I believe, as this church grows, is going to raise up leaders to shepherd and to lead and to feed this congregation until Jesus comes again. Let's pray.